chapter 2. We're going to be looking at this. Hey, Mick, was he wearing socks up there on the stage? Did you notice that picture? Was he in, oh, slippers. They wouldn't let you wear shoes inside. Now, that's different. I, I just point that out because... One of the strange things when people come visit us in Thailand, you want to see Pastor live it like before, like he would, when he came to visit us in Thailand, you take your shoes off before you go in the building. And that's one of the weird things is that, and I don't understand that because inside the building, when you got on the floors, they were just as dirty as anywhere else. You come in, your socks would be dirty. They'd be black after you've been at church. And man, I tell you, we'd walk in, you take all your shoes off and you leave them in front of the building. And... <laughs> He came out, and Pastor Phil came in, and he says, hey, Ryan, uh, he said, do you think somebody's going to take my shoes? I said, Pastor Phil, there is no Thai person that wears a size 13. You don't have to worry about it. So <laughs> no problem whatsoever there. You just leave them. Nobody's going to wear those. <laughs> They'll wear boats walking down the road. No, I'm just kidding. All right. So Nehemiah chapter 2, that had nothing to do with anything. But I thought it looked like he was wearing socks there. Felt like I was back in Thailand for a second. Okay, Nehemiah chapter 2. I tell you, I have thoroughly enjoyed just going through this book. Um, you can't help but walk away from the scriptures when you study about Nehemiah and be, not be thoroughly impressed by this man that had a burden that God had put on his heart. And the thing that's so neat about it is that you see that he was a man that he turned to the Lord at every juncture of the book. You can literally see the different phases, the different obstacles that would come his way. And he was a man that had a huge task in front of him. But the thing that set Nehemiah apart is that he always had this sense of being able to keep his eyes focused on the Lord. And I don't know about you, but in whatever stage of life you find yourself, if you are able to be the type of believer that keeps your focus right, have you noticed how that helps you a lot in life? If you see God correctly, it'll help you see your problems correctly. If you are able to turn to the Lord at certain difficult moments in your life, you have the tendency of handling the problem a whole lot better than if you take your focus off of him. So notice that as we go throughout this passage. You'll notice that at every stage, Nehemiah, he's either talking about the Lord or he's turning to the Lord. And man, that is a great way to live the Christian life. Now, I was thinking about this week, uh, May 10th, 1940, Winston Churchill was elected the prime minister of England. It wouldn't be long before Churchill would be tested. I don't know how much of you, you all like history, but history is so, has, teaches such incredible lessons. Churchill, as he was elected, he didn't know it, but it wouldn't be long before he would be responsible to keep his country together through one of their difficult moments. He didn't know it, but the fury of the Third Reich and the wrath of Adolf Hitler would be directed towards England. And he would have the difficult task of trying to rally his country to come together. Hard job. So England, under Churchill's leadership, would not break. But even during the darkest days of World War II, Adolf Hitler began to bomb England began to pummel their cities, one city after another. And Churchill would be heard on the radio. He would begin to telegraph uh, his speeches, and he would begin to speak through the radio to try to bring the people together. And one of his greatest speeches, I think, of what I've ever read of Churchill, listen to the words of what he said to bring his people together. 
fantastic words. I, I think there's probably no greater orator than probably Churchill, if you've ever been able to hear anything he said. Listen to the words that he said. We shall not fail. We shall not go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight in the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills, and we shall never surrender. I have nothing to offer you but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. And if the British Empire and its commonwealth last for a thousand years, men shall, will stay, still say, this was our finest hour. Wow, powerful words. With just a few words out of the mouth of this man, he was able to rally a country together for a very difficult season of their time as a nation. You know, as I thought about that, when you come to Nehemiah chapter 2, the people of Israel are facing their moment, their greatest hour, their greatest challenge. As Nehemiah has already made his way from, uh, from Persia and he makes his way into Jerusalem, you remember that it was a, a gap between when he originally prayed for God to move and it was four-month gap before God answered his prayer. When he answered it, Nehemiah, he got the letters that he had requested from the king along with all the resources to go back and be able to rebuild the walls. Now, the incredible thing is this. As he approached it, that was just the beginning point. He didn't yet have the hearts of the people to rally them behind what God called him to do. You can have all the plans in all the world. You can have dreams. You can have great things that you want to accomplish. But if you cannot win the hearts of the people and you can't get them to rally together, Guess what? Plans don't matter, really, do they? Nehemiah, probably his greatest task was going to be to get the people to work together. Can I tell you in ministry, there's probably the, the most difficult thing is to get people on the same page, right? Why is that? So many people have their own ideas. People have certain things they want to accomplish. They have their own agendas. And to get people off their agenda onto the same one is often a very difficult job. We're going to find that in this passage, Nehemiah has a message that's very similar to Churchill's message, although Nehemiah's came 2,100 years earlier. And what we find is this. He's going to basically spout off to the people that are in Jerusalem, we will not surrender to the enemy. It was a stubborn refusal. He's saying, we will accomplish what God set in front of us. Don't you love leadership like that? That says we're not going to cowtail to the people around us. We are going to be focused in on what God set in front of us. Isn't that important to know what God's called you to do and then put your hand to the task? And not only that, but to rally people around it. And he's going to promise the people a victory. You know, leadership is really, a spiritual leadership is the ability to see something that's yet to happen, but to believe that God can do it. Can I ask you guys just really, and this is an honest question, don't you think that that's what our nation and what churches need today is a vision to rally around, Amen. a cause, something that they can say, hey, this is what God's called us to, let's put our hand to it together. 
I think that's what I love about Nehemiah and why it really moved my heart to start off here because if there's anything that we need as a church as we're underneath new leadership now, it's important for us to be able to rally together. Would you agree with that? If there's ever a time for us to be unified, it's right now. If there's ever a time for us to put our hands together for the task that God's put in front of us, it's now. The, the world has seen enough division. They've seen enough of believers that get ugly with each other and they divide over things that don't even matter. There's far more at, at, at hand for us than just division. And so as we look at this, let's be challenged and look at the way that Nehemiah began to motivate the people to work together. I'll be honest with you, I, I think it's such a valuable lesson for us to learn. All of us have some form of leadership. Leadership is influence, and there's not a person in this room that doesn't have some form of leadership in one way or another, right? So how is it that you can motivate people? Would you agree that's a really hard job? If you've ever been in leadership, just getting anybody to agree on anything is a, is a major win. And so what we see here is he's going to discover the painful principle of this. Whenever there is opportunity, there's always opposition. How many of you recognize that whenever God wants to accomplish something, usually opposition isn't far from it? Have you ever noticed that? Why is that? Anytime that God wants to begin anything great that he's going to do amongst his people, you better believe that Satan is going to be fighting it he doesn't want it to accomplish. He doesn't want God's people working together. He doesn't want us to join hands for the mission that God has set in front of us. He would rather divide and conquer. That's always what the enemy's doing. Nehemiah, he journeys to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall, and the number one task that he's going to have is to motivate the people to work together. Here was the problem that they faced. When he came back to the city, there were going to be young folks whose hands were still soft. They weren't used to working. That's why the work had gone on for so long. Nobody had rebuilt the walls. Then there was going to be older folks that had been living there without walls for a long time. And so they were already what? They were used to how things were. It's the way that they had always been. And so it was going to be as if he had a, a, a problem on both sides. The young folks weren't used to working. The older folks weren't, were used to the condition that they were in. And so to motivate both groups to begin to work together was going to be a monumental task. The truth was is that many of them had given up any hope that they would ever rebuild the walls. And so Nehemiah would begin to uh, think up a plan and he was going to begin to think of how he could motivate them and challenge them to work together for God's glory. And listen, folks, isn't that really what it's about? Nehemiah, at every phase of his life, is moving for the people to do something not for Nehemiah's glory, not for Nehemiah's name. You're going to see that he's pushing the people to do it for his name, for God's glory, so that he gets the credit, because when they would work together and they saw the task accomplished, everybody would look at it and think, what? Only God could have done this. Now think, they had not rebuilt the walls for 70, over 70 years since they had worked on it. And you know how long when they began to work on it together, you know how long it took them? Listen to this, 52 days. 
You imagine what the enemy would look at when God began to work and the people were unified and they were accomplishing the task that was in front of them. They accomplished in 52 days what they couldn't do in 70 years. And everybody looked around. Their enemies from the outside looked at them and said, only God could have done that. Isn't their God great? Hey, folks, anything that we ever try to do together should always be done for his glory, not for a person. It's his church. Now, let's look at how he began to motivate them. And folks, you can use this in any a phase of leadership. Whether you're a business person, whether you're in your marriage, no matter what it is, you can look at how Nehemiah began to try to motivate the people, and you can take valuable lessons that you can apply to your own life. So don't think that this is just tailor-made for just a church or any other avenue. You can use this in several different aspects. Okay, the very first thing is this. He began a private investigation of the scene. Nehemiah chapter 2. So Nehemiah, he comes onto the scene as a builder. Now, remember, I told you, the book of Nehemiah, he has three different jobs. You guys remember him? He first started off as a, what, cupbearer. His second job was going to be builder. The third job was going to be governor. Okay, so he's already passed the cupbearer phase of working for the king in Persia. That's what afforded them the opportunity to come back and to build to begin with. So you come to this next phase. He's coming into Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. Now, I don't know about you. Are, is anybody in here you like to like, get right to work? Some people are like, I don't know. Some people are like, wake up early in the morning. Let's get at this. I don't identify with you. I don't understand you. If you're that way, God bless you. I don't, I don't understand that. I'm not, I, like, I don't even know like the day begins until maybe my mind comes to me about 9 a.m. That's why I do mindless tasks early in the morning. I'm just joking. All right. So here's the thing is that Nehemiah, it would have been very tempting for him to come to Jerusalem and do what? Man, let's get this thing going. Man, I, I've been in Persia. I've been praying about this four months already and not even including the travel time. Nehemiah comes and he, he doesn't start recruiting. He doesn't start calling for people to build. Now, there's a reason why I'm pointing this out. Uh, if it was me, like day one, let's get this, buddy. Let's get, let's get going. We got a task to build, do, and we're going to get this done. But listen, he slowed down. And listen, the very first principle is this. If you're going to lead and motivate people, it starts with silence and solitude. You're like, Ryan, that, that sounds off. It's counterintuitive. You're like, Ryan, why in the world would you say stop and wait and don't do anything yet? Well, let's look at what happens with Nehemiah. Look at verse 11. So I came to Jerusalem and was there, how long? Three days. He was there three days. Well, what had he been doing? We really don't know. As far as we know, he just waits. You're like, well, what a waste of time. Why would in the world would anybody just choose to wait? He could have been using those three days to plant. He could have like, been interviewing all the best builders of the city. He could have been setting up important meetings. Well, he, it's possible he did those things. All we know is that he didn't begin building yet. He began to wait. He didn't get in a rush. He wasn't hasty. He wasn't too quick to begin. He didn't know what God had for him yet. He knew he had a vision. He had a burden. But he didn't know how God wanted him to go about the task. And so it was important principle for him to wait. Maybe he met with locals. Maybe he began to take inventory of what they had. Maybe he did what he did earlier in the book where he began to pray and plan. Possible. 
all possible, but he didn't begin yet. Notice verse 12. And I arose in the night, and I had some few men with me. Neither told I any man what my God had put in my heart. Isn't that neat? God had already put it in his heart, and he didn't tell anybody about it yet. To do at Jerusalem, neither was there any beast with me, save the beast that I rode upon. So here's Nehemiah. He goes out in the night and begins to scout and begins to look at the destruction around him. He's looking at the walls. He's inspecting it. Look down at verse uh, 16. Look at verse 16. And the rulers knew not whither I went or what I did, neither had I as yet told it to the Jews, nor to the priests, nor to the nobles, nor to the rulers, nor to the rest that did the work. That's verse 16. Now, what's, what's going on here? You're like, Nehemiah, don't, if you're going to get anything accomplished, you've got to talk to people. You know, the side of leadership that people never recognize is that we think of leaders as being in the limelight all the time. We think they're always in front of people. They're always in the limelight. People are always have their focus on them. But the side of leadership that people rarely focus on is what they're like in private and in silence and in solitude. You know, one of the greatest principles that you can learn about leadership is that it's not so much just about what you're like in public as it is what you're like in private. You know, the people that can earn the people's respect and motivate people is people of character. People where God has been working on their heart behind the scene. People where they, are, they understand to be silent and allow God to speak to them. Here's Nehemiah, and he's not too quick to act. He doesn't get in a rush, but he allows for himself to look at the scene and begin to analyze, God, what is it that you would have us do? Isn't that powerful? Are you a type of person you like to hurry up and get things done? Well, sometimes that works against you. Sometimes you need to wait in silence. Sometimes you need the solitude to allow God to work and move. I mean, I'll just tell you, I identify with that. I can remember going to the mission field, going to Thailand. I'm like, man, let's hit the ground running. Hey, you know the problem is? You don't know the language yet, buddy. <laughs> there's steps that go along with it. You can't just walk in and do ministry with people. You gotta, there's steps that lead up to that. You have to have some time where God develops you first, the times where God begins to speak to you first, the ways where God begins to work and move inside your heart first. Because for, far before you can ever have a public ministry, God always starts it in private first. True or false? You know, as I was reflecting on this, I was thinking about all the people that God, first of all, had to work on them privately before he ever used them publicly. Think in your mind the people that God used. I can tell you that some of the greatest men that God has used in the scriptures are people that he first of all worked on them in their private, in the solitude. He worked in the, in the private place where he began to speak to them and he began to work on their hearts, right? Think of people like Moses. We think of Moses and the fact that everybody wants to focus on when he was leading the people out of Egypt and when he led them in the wilderness. But long before he ever led them there, where did he start on them? back when he was leading the sheep for his father-in-law, Jethro. It was in that 
quiet place. You remember before that when he was in Pharaoh's palace, he, he attacked that Egyptian soldier and killed him, hit him in the sand. He acted too quickly. He hadn't learned to wait for God's timing yet. And so he had to put him in a desert, in a wilderness for 40 years so that he would learn the lesson to wait on God's timing. Think of other people like David, the greatest king that Israel ever had. Long before he was ever king, God did what with him? He had him be a shepherd in the hillside of Bethlehem with the sheep, where he learned how to, before he learned how to slay giants, he learned first of all how to fight bears and how to fight lions, and he learned how to write songs about the God that he knew. God worked on him privately far before he ever came up, became a public figure. God had to move in his heart first. Think of people like Paul, the great apostle of God. You remember him? God calls him and saves him. And not only that, but before he ever used him as an apostle, you remember what he did? He led him to Arabia where God began to work on his heart in, in that private place, in the solitude. God began to move in his heart. And you remember Jesus came and actually privately taught him the scriptures. Can you imagine what that would have been like? Or you think of people like, I mean, we could go to per Jesus took times where he went to the solitude to be alone and pray. And folks, here's what I'm trying to say. You're like, Ryan, you're, you're really pounding this point. What do you mean by that? What I mean is that your private walk with God should, that always precedes your public work for God. Your private walk with God should always precede your public works for God. Can I tell you that uh, that's how leadership gets their, their, their priorities wrong? You want to know of spiritual leaders that get off the tracks? It always starts with something what? Private. Nehemiah, here in this passage, he took the time to sit in silence to allow God to work. A leader has to learn the art of what they are alone to have that private character. You guys know the, the coach John uh, Wooden, right? You remember him? All right, this is a statement that he made I thought is fantastic. He said, be more concerned with your character than your reputation because your character is what you really are while your reputation is merely what others think you are. You know what he was saying? Work on who you are privately. That's far more important than what people think about you publicly. Hey, you know what we need in leadership? There's people that God begins to work on their heart and burden them and move on their heart and begins to speak to them. You're like, well, Ryan, how do you know that's what God was doing with Nehemiah? You want to know how we know? Look down at verse 12. Look at what he says. We're given the secret of what God was doing in Nehemiah's heart. Look at what he says. Neither told I any man what? What my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. As he was surveying and as he was being quiet and as he was looking around at the walls, God was beginning to fill his heart with a burden. God began to uh, move in him, began to work on him. God was speaking to him. When there was quietness, when there was no activity, when he wasn't preoccupied with just getting stuff done. Can I tell you that in our day and age, in our country, we are just so busy. We're so preoccupied with so many things. Social media is not helping that. We're 
constantly in contact with the news and all bombarded with all types of information. And folks, can I just be honest with you? All of that information, sometimes it works against us because we never learn how to be alone, how to be in quiet, how to be in solitude and allow God to speak to us. You want to know why a lot of times I believe there's a leadership gap that we have? We no longer know what it's like to be in quiet and allow God to speak to us anymore. We always have to have the, t- I, I don't know what it's like at y'all's house. In my house, like my kids, we have one of those echo dots. Have y'all seen one of those? Uh, is that what it's called? I think it is. All right. Um, so my kids, whenever there's quiet in the house, they have this Alexa. They can talk to Alexa anytime. Alexa, what's the joke of the day? Alexa, why don't you play a song for us? And they can pick the, the group that they want to hear a song by. They pick Toby Mac, and I'm like, you're killing me. All right. And so what happens is, is like, Alexa, play us a song. And there's no longer any quiet at my house. I should have known that back when I had three kids. But anyway, uh, but the point is this. Hey, folks, we no longer know what it's like to be quiet and be in solitude and allow God to speak to us. Long before you'll ever lead people publicly, you have to learn how to lead yourself privately. You have to learn to meet with God, allow him to fill your heart with a uh, a burden and a vision, to allow him to speak to you, to allow him to begin to put a dream in front of you that's so big that only God could do it. Don't you think we need that? Oh, we desperately need it. And see, you know why the secret to Nehemiah's leadership was that God filled his heart first before he ever went to the people. Can I say that one more time? One of the keys to Nehemiah's leadership is that he allowed God first to put something into his heart long before he ever brought something to the people. That is so valuable. Now notice what he did after that. He sat in solitude, allowed God to fill his heart with a burden, but notice he did a survey. It's so important in leadership for you to expose yourself to reality. You know, sometimes we can get so caught up in our own little places that we fail to see things as they really are. Would you agree with that? The keys to leadership is expose yourself to what's really happening. Be aware of the facts. Know what it is you're really facing. Look at what happens, verse 13. And I went out by night by the gate of the valley, even before the dragon well, to the dung port, and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and the gates thereof were, accustomed, or were consumed with fire. This is Nehemiah's midnight ride when he goes out and he begins to inspect the walls and the gates. He's looking uh, around Jerusalem. There's many different gates. And so he went out at night, and he begins to survey the walls that are broken down around him. Notice that, I, I think that's an important part of leadership. Notice he did it at night when a lot of people were sleeping. You know, there's, in leadership, that comes with a burden, right? You know that a lot of leaders, they struggle sleeping because of the burden of what God's given them to do. There's a, 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 there's a, a sense of how enormous that it is. There's a burden that comes with that. You know, uh, people like Oswald Sanders said that's the, the penalty of leadership. He's out riding around inspecting the gates. Now look at verse 14. Then I went on to the gate of the fountain and to the king's pool, but there was no place for the beast that was under me to pass. So he comes to the point, the, the wall is so broken down, he has to get off his horse and he has to begin to walk around. He's gone to the southern side of, of the wall of Jerusalem and he's making his way up the eastern side and he begins to analyze what's going on there. 
Now notice what he says in verse 15. Then went I up in the night by the brook and viewed, you might circle that word viewed, the wall and turned back and entered by the gate of the valley and so returned. There's two different times where Nehemiah used that word inspect or, or view. The word inspect there is the idea of taking detail, of looking at it closely. It's actually a medical term where you would look at a wound and you would diagnose exactly what you need to do to treat it. Nehemiah, as he's looking at this wall, he's looking at the extent of the damage. Why is he doing that? Well, in leadership, you have to be able to notice what your problems are. You have to know what's not working. You have to begin to plan and, and begin to think about what type of people you'll need to put in that position to make it work, right? Not everybody has the same skill set. And so he's surveying and he's thinking in his mind, he's thinking of a process, uh, what kind of skilled workers that he might need. And, and it couldn't be done by anybody. So if he's going to motivate people, he first of all has to have a burden that God's put in his heart. And here in this point, he has to know exactly what type of people he'll need. And so that he can begin to motivate them and push them out in order to accomplish the task. Now notice what else he happens. After he's done these things, we get into the second part, which I personally, I find very motivating. The second thing is he has an open discussion of the need. Don't you like people that just are very direct? They don't beat around the bush. They just tell it like it is. Maybe you don't like that. I think that's great. Some, it just depends on the situation, I guess. All right, but here's, here's the thing is that Nehemiah, what he's going to do is he's just going to be very blunt about the situation. Now, look at what he does. He announces his intentions. He has this presentation. And notice, hey, folks, this is the first time he's spoken to the people. Does that blow your mind? He's very slow before he throws out the vision and the burden uh, to the people. Now look at verse 17. Then said I unto them, you see the distress that we are in. How Jerusalem lies in waste and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come and let us build up the wall of Jerusalem that we be no more a reproach. Don't you love the words of Nehemiah? Can I tell you that if you are in leadership, you ought to just star that verse. It, it bleeds leadership. It tells you how to handle people. Look at what he does. He doesn't sugarcoat the problem. He says, you guys see it. I see it. Everybody around us sees the problem. He's saying it's not a wonder or a question about what our problem is. The problem was what, folks? What was it? There's no wall. No wall, no protection. Your enemy can attack you at any time. You're vulnerable. You guys see it, I see it, and he just, he just throws it out there. But notice the most important words of leadership are found in verse 17. Notice how many times he uses the word we. We and us, several different times. You know if you want to motivate people, you know what you should do? You need to identify with them in the problem. It's so easy to point out people to people the problems, right? Nehemiah could have come about it this way. Now, folks, if you can really clue in on this part, this is so powerful in leadership. He could have come to Jerusalem and said, your walls are broken down. You guys have been living here. You guys are reproach. You need to build the wall. Now, what would that have done? It would have discouraged them and divided them. 
and would have been uh, like telling them, hey, it's your problem, your mess, you clean it up. He didn't talk to them that way. When he began to, it squelches motivation when you point out problems to people that, don't you, there's certain types of people that are just critical and negative about everything. He didn't come in and just say, hey, you guys have this problem, you go fix it. You want to know what squelches motivation? When you just point out problems, but you don't point out ways to fix it. Is that true or false? Man, I tell you, you want to make money for your business? You want to rise up in leadership? Be a person that doesn't just notice the problems, but be a person that does what? That also knows the way to fix the problems. That is always far better, right? Now, notice what he does. He, he, he keeps going and he says, we, us. When you cast blame and you criticize, you squelch motivation. But when you take on the burden of what's going on, you motivate people. Notice he said, we are in a mess. It's a bad situation. We have a problem. We need to rebuild. He's shouldering it himself. He stayed with the facts. He doesn't weep. He doesn't criticize. He doesn't get negative. He tells the truth. Now look at verses 17 and 18. That we be no more a reproach. Then I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me, as also the king's words that he had spoken unto me. Now listen, this is where it gets very motivational. He says that we would be no more a reproach, that people would stop looking down on us. And he begins to tell them about how God had begun to move. Let us rebuild the walls so that the people of God will be able to represent the living God. The idea of a reproach is somebody that looks down their nose at somebody. He's saying that the countries that are around us, they look down on us. They don't think we're doing anything. They think our God is weak. And what, what uh, Nehemiah is doing is he's saying, hey, folks, let's get on the same page together so that we can begin to live out a testimony that we have a living God and that he's among us and that he's working. That's a great way to motivate. Now, you know there's a lot of different ways to motivate people, primarily two different ways. One is extrinsic motivation. That's where you point to rewards or something outside you can do for somebody. The second way is what? Intrinsic. Extrinsic and intrinsic is an internal motivation. Extrinsic is like when you tell your kids, hey, if you clean up your room, I'll give you a piece of candy. Or if you clean up your room, then, uh, then you, I'll give you dessert or whatever it might be. Okay, that's extrinsic. It's not always bad. Did you know God uses extrinsic motivation? He says that if you'll live for me, I'll give you a crown, or he has different rewards for you, right? That's extrinsic. But listen, great leaders, a lot of times in Scripture, are people that know how to motivate people internally, intrinsic. What did he say? What was his motivation? Let us rebuild the wall that we won't be a reproach. Let us do this task together so that when people look at us, they'll know that our God is living, that he's working and moving amongst us. Notice what he says in verse 18. Then I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me, as also the king's words that he had spoken unto me. Why was it that Nehemiah went to that place? He's saying, God's at work amongst us. Let me tell you how. Can I tell you that in spiritual leadership, you want to know what will get people's hearts moving and pumping 
faster and faster. You want to know what it is? When people begin to see that God is working and moving, people get motivated. You want to know why listening to testimonies of other people is so powerful? You hear somebody get up and share about how God changed their life? You want to know why that's so encouraging? God's moving, and you get to, to, to see how God did it. Nehemiah, what do you think he did when he stood up and he began to share with him about how the hand of my God was good upon me? And notice what he mentioned, as also the king's words, which he spoke unto me. What is he talking about? As Nehemiah stood up, he said, folks, we're going to rebuild this wall, and let me tell you how. God's already moving, and he's already working amongst us. You want to know how I know? I prayed for four months that God would move the heart of a king you remember, I, he believed that God can move people by God through prayer. He prayed for four months for it to happen. And you know what happened? One day he was sad and the king said, what's wrong with you? And he began to tell him, he said, how could I not be sad when I see my, my father's sepulchers are, are in waste? And the king begins to ask more questions. You remember last week? God moved the heart of the king to ask him the next question. And he said, folks, let me tell you what God did. One day I had a sad countenance and, and the king asked me what it was that I needed and I told him, I want to rebuild the walls for my people. And the king said, what do you need? And I asked for two things. I asked for letters from him. He gave it to me. Not only did God move the heart of a king, he gave us all the resources that we needed to rebuild it. God is already working. He's already moving. You don't have to be worried. He's already going to get this thing accomplished. He's already set it out. And folks, that's how you motivate people, spiritually speaking. Allow them to see how God is already working and moving amongst them. Folks, uh, part of spiritual leadership is being able to see what's spiritually happening around you that other people really can't see. It's easy to get discouraged in the world that we live in. But if you're not careful, you'll forget about seeing the little things that God's doing around you. And it'll just blend in and you'll get discouraged. Can I be honest with you? The part of having the leadership of a church is a very big task. And one of the best things that I've learned personally over a very short amount of time is you learn to see the little ways that God works and moves. And you remember that because he's working and moving that though there might be opposition, you can recognize the fact that God has opportunity right in front of us as a church. Folks, don't forget about how God is working and moving in just little ways. Because folks, that's what will keep you motivated and moving. Notice the response. Look at verse 18. We got very little time. Verse 18, it says, And they said, Let us rise up and build. And so they strengthened their hands for this good work. Notice how they responded. They heard the burden. They heard the plan. They heard the motivation, how God was already working and moving. And notice their response was this. Let's rise up and build. Now notice their words. What words did they use? They used the same words of Nehemiah. Let us build. The work. Let, let us do it together. You want to know when the church is at its strongest? When people stand up and say things like this, let us rise up and build. 
You know, one of the greatest burdens that I've had for our church is this. The task is far too big for just a church staff. Behind every great church is a great church members that say, let us rise up and let us do this together. Because folks, this is not my church. It's not the church staff's church. It's God's church. It's his church. And as a result, all of us need to be involved in the task together. The task is bigger than me. It's bigger than you. But what it requires is that all of us would join our hands together and we would begin to recognize all of us have our part to play. All of us have a role that God could use us in the building of his church. And that's what I love about what Nehemiah says. He says, let us rise up and build. And the people, what did they do? They responded. What would have happened if they just chose to do nothing? Well, it would continue on the way it was. Hey, folks, so it goes in every facet, every organization, every church where the people aren't responsive, where the people aren't moved to action, guess what happens? The same old thing continues to happen. And folks, uh, I think that God has a lot in store for us as a church. I really believe that with all my heart. But it takes all of us. Now, uh, we have to see what happens in the passage because it's just reality. Notice that direct criticism comes during this moment. All the people have said, let us rise and build. What happened? Immediately following the moment when people are unified, immediately the criticism and the opposition comes out. It happens all the time. Notice what happens in verse 19. But when Sanballat the Hornite and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, and Geshem and the Arabian heard it, what did they do? They laughed, at, laughed us to scorn and despised us and said, what is this thing that you do? Will you rebel against the king? There's always going to be criticism. It doesn't matter where you're at. They mocked them. That is the idea that they began to stutter or to stutter to utter words of derision over them. They began to laugh at them. They began to look down on them. They despised them. That's the idea of turning your nose up at somebody. They said, who are you guys? You're crazy if you think you'll accomplish this. You think people ever say things like that? That'll never happen. It won't happen. Negativity. Anytime you want to do something for God, count on it. People will be negative. You can look at the glass as half empty or half full. But notice what Nehemiah does that's so, so great in this passage. Verse 20, notice what he says. Then answered I them and said unto them, now can I stop right there for a second? If I was Nehemiah, you know what I would have said? All right, I'm going to be really nice here. I'm going to say it in a better way, okay? They accused him of doing something outside the king's authority. You know what I would have done? I would have taken that letter that I got from the king. Wrong. Look at this. I got a letter from the king. He's behind us. I personally would have done that. Nehemiah didn't. Look at what he said. And he said unto them, the God of heaven, he will prosper us. Therefore we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion, nor right, nor memorial in Jerusalem. He doesn't even mention the letter of the king. You know why? He's mentioning a king that's even higher than that. Who are you going to get in the way of something that God wants to do? It's the God of heaven. It's his plan. He's already begun to work and move. What are you going to do to get in the way? God can move the heart of a king. He can surely move my opponents. Folks, I love that. 
Folks, we need more thinking like that. Listen, if God can move the heart of a pagan king to not only allow him to go back, but also provide the resources to build it, you think he can't work it out with opposition? Man, that is a great outlook. He says, he, you remember when you were a kid on the playground and you used to draw a line? He said, those of you that are on my side, come stand on this line, you know, on this side. You draw that line. That's exactly what Nehemiah did. He drew the line and he said, as far as for us, this is our portion. We're God's people. You're not a part of it. So you stay on that side and we're going to stand on this side. He called the people to action and he says, hey, God's called us to do this together. Let's stand unified and let's do it. Fantastic, fantastic way. Now, notice the people, are they going to mock him? Yeah, that's going to happen the whole book. They're going to say things like, hey, a fox, if it climbed up on your wall, it would knock it over. They're going to mock him the whole time. Hey, you know what they're going to be reminded of? Hey, just the same God that worked and moved for Nehemiah to come back into Jerusalem is the same God that's going to enable them to rebuild the walls. Now, let me close with this. Notice the unhindered focus of the builder. You remember what I told you I loved about Nehemiah? All throughout the book, it didn't matter what group he was in front of. Listen, he was in front of three different groups in the book of uh, Nehemiah chapter 2. The first group that he was with, or this wasn't really a group, he was by himself. The second group was the people that were in Jerusalem. The third group of people were the enemies. Now notice, I want to point this out to you because you have to see this. Look at what happened while Nehemiah was alone. Look at verse 12. And I arose in the night, I and some of the few men that were with me, neither told I any man what God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. Who does he mention? He mentions God. Okay, then look at the second group, verse 18. This is uh, while... Uh, uh, in front of his own people. Look at verse 18. Then I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me. Who does he mention? God. Okay, now notice that when he's in front of the enemies, notice who he mentions. Look at verse 20. Then answered I them and said unto them, the God of heaven, he will prosper us. Who does he mention? Hey, folks, it didn't matter whether he was in private or in public or with his enemy. You know who he was mentioning? His eyes were constantly throughout the entire book, focused on who? God. You want to make a mess of your situation? Get your eyes off of him. And what he's teaching is the valuable principle, no matter what stage of life you're in, no matter what situation you're in, you always keep your eyes focused on God because he will be your true north. He'll be the compass that'll set your path to correct. And folks, that is a valuable thing in our lives. Now let me give you application and we're done. Number one is this. Remember the truth that God will, uh, God's will is not always easy, but it's never impossible. I've found a lot of times in my life the things that are most meaningful, the things that, are most me that have more, the most purpose behind them are oftentimes the things that are the hardest. It requires us to have faith and trust. Second thing is this, rest in the fact that God will never command you to do something without providing the strength to do it. You think Nehemiah ever felt overwhelmed? Look at the walls, look at the condition, there's weeds growing up, there's, what, where do we even begin? 
But listen, folks, where God calls, he also provides the strength all the time. His resources are unlimited. That's what's so great. That's why you keep your eyes and your focus on him. The third thing is this. Uh, to avoid the pitfall of discouragement is to rejoice in the principle that opposition only means opportunity is a close at hand. Listen, that is a powerful principle. The reason why he encountered opposition was why? The opportunity was right in front of him. And listen, folks, it's 100% true. He was at the most important apex of their time. The moment when God was going to begin to work and move. And in 52 days, that wall would come up. Something they couldn't do in 70 years. 70 years. Can I just say this and, and we'll be done. One of the reasons why the people had accomplished so much was that they had determined that they were going to work together for God's glory. Hey folks, uh, we need leadership like that, don't we? The type of, that will take the, uh, allow time for God to speak into us and give us a burden and begin to unite us together for the purpose of rebuilding together. Hey folks, we need to have that, don't we? Can I ask you to do something as we close tonight? Would you begin to pray that prayer and think about the challenge that Nehemiah gave the people. Let us rise up and build together. You know what their response was? Let's do this. Let's join our hands to the work. Hey, would you begin to pray that for our church? I think that that would be such a valuable thing for us to say, God, help us to have that burden. We see your hand at work. We see how you're working and moving already, even in the small things. But Lord, would you begin to press upon our hearts a burden to see the work accomplished for your glory. Man, that is the type of prayer I really believe God will answer. Let's bow our heads. And uh, as the ushers are in the back, if you'll come forward with the offering place, we'll go ahead and pray for that as well. Lord, we thank for, we're thankful for the fact that you're a God that does work and move all around.